All right, and anyone who's going to be with me today, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20. You can meet me there. So, how was everyone's week? I will go first, mostly rough. And so we want to just take a few minutes as we get going uh, just to update you on what's happened here at Meadowbrook in the last little bit. And so uh, obviously we are uh, 20 months or so into this and uh, all churches have had to adjust to different things as we have navigated COVID. And one of our goals uh, during 2021 specifically, as we said, we don't want to talk about COVID all the time. We did a lot of that in 2020. We preached on it a lot. In 2021, we've actively been saying we don't want to do that all the time because we really just want to focus on Jesus and what he's doing. And that is good. I think that is still the right call. But we knew once in a while we were going to have to talk about things. And so just for a couple of minutes before we get to the word, uh, that is what we're going to have to do today for a few minutes. And so uh, there's been lots of times in this pandemic where people in the church have have caught the virus and, and even passed it. Uh, one family, you know, hanging out with another family and it spread there. And anytime we hear about that, we always take it seriously and we just follow up and were you at church on Sunday and, and how long ago and always wanting just to keep an eye on everything. We have let you know as a church a couple of times uh, throughout this pandemic, we have said, hey, just so you know, someone on Sunday has tested positive. If anybody is feeling unwell, get tested, let us know. Uh, so we have not ever had to shut anything down yet. Lots Lots of churches have, uh, just out of precaution, if there's been uh, some spread or an exposure on a Sunday morning, we've managed to avoid that so far, which is pretty great. I was really hoping we were going to get all the way through without having to do that, and uh, unfortunately, that is not the case. But all the precautions we have taken, uh, all the, the work we've done, the price we've paid has been just to try and keep our people safe and keep our community safe as well. And so we, for the first time, have had to close things down for a bit, and you know, just as the week unfolded last week, um, you know, we, we heard that somebody had tested positive and then a couple more had tested positive and then more had tested positive and it just was escalating fairly quickly. And because of that and because a lot of the people who were testing positive uh, had been at youth a week and a half ago, a lot of them had been at church on Sunday morning, uh, just as things were escalating, we just talked as a staff, we talked as a board and we just decided, uh, you know what, let's just shut her down for the sake of one Sunday, for the sake of a youth night, for the sake of a kids club night for the sake of a life group night. Let's just be better safe than sorry and just give it a chance to calm down and just let it kind of pass through the system. So that is why we chose to do that this week. Uh, as things continue to escalate throughout the week, uh, the health unit w was involved. So we are in conversation with them. And just so you know, like there, when it comes to this stuff, uh, we are always going to be honest with you, and we are always going to be honest with the health unit. And I know there are churches that have had situations where a few people have gotten sick, and they've covered it up, and they've told people, we don't want to talk to the government about these things. Um, I don't think those churches have a lot of integrity or those pastors, because we're supposed to be people of honesty as followers of Jesus. And so we will be honest with you about this stuff. We will be honest with the health unit about this stuff, and we encourage you to be honest with the health unit if they end up calling you to talk about things. And so we 
um, as we just continue to wait on this, things are slowing down. Uh, they are not spreading as much. We have a number of people in our church who are sick right now, a number of families who are sick who are connected to it. Um, we have a number of people who are waiting to be tested and, and are isolating right now. Um, and it does seem at this point that there has potentially been a little bit of spread from the Sunday morning service. Up until uh, a couple of days ago, we were pretty sure everybody who was sick was connected to a social gathering that wasn't at the church. Um, but now there are a couple of people who've been testing positive who weren't connected to that social gathering, but they were all here on Sunday. And so um, the health unit will be, I think we'll be talking to them a fair bit uh, this week, just as we continue to figure out what to do from there. And so, uh, and just so you know too, and I, I say this just so we can all be aware is that uh, most of the cases are unvaccinated cases. There are a few fully vaccinated people who have also tested positive. And so I only say that to say to our fully vaccinated brothers and sisters, please take any symptoms seriously as well. Uh, the benefit of the vaccine is that it lowers our risk. It doesn't eliminate our risk of catching it. And so please take that seriously too. Uh, everyone who's vaccinated is having a very mild case. And, um, and for everybody, everyone is doing pretty good so far of the people who are sick. Some are getting hammered a little harder than others, which seems to be pretty typical of COVID. But so far, everyone's doing okay, and we need to be praying for them. But as we uh, made our plan last week, our plan thus far, we'll see what the health unit says tomorrow, but uh, thus far, our plan is to reopen on Thursday, assuming the cases have stopped spreading, and uh, we will see. And we may have to tighten up some COVID protocols, depending on what the health unit says. So we will wait and see how that unfolds as well. Um, but for this week, uh, so there won't be life groups, there won't be kids club. We will see about youth as the week unfolds. Our plan is to be back on Sunday morning next week. Um, and, you know, eventually we will reach a point, and we may be close to that, I think, where, uh, where we're just kind of living with COVID because, you know, even as people are getting sick, if they're not going into the hospital, if they're not dying, uh, then we're kind of okay, and we can kind of learn to live with that. And so, um, so that just might happen at churches, you know, from now on. That just might be part of life, is that just like there are flu outbreaks, there are COVID outbreaks, as long as no one's dying, we can live with that, and we can, we can understand that and make that work. But we have been saying this throughout. I will say it again, and it's going to be tricky uh, as we head into cold and flu season because sometimes you just get colds and flus, right? So uh, I had a touch of a sore throat this week. I had been connected to one of the people who tested positive, so I got tested. My test was negative. Uh, Renee, as well, uh, was feeling a little bit of a sore throat, went and got tested. Hers was negative. And so there is just cold and flus going around, and that's the bummer of this stupid virus, is that uh, very few people who get COVID symptoms, does it start off feeling like anything but a normal cold? And so because of that, we go about our lives still, and, and we keep living our lives. So I'll just say it again. We've been saying it throughout. If you have any cold or flu symptoms, please, please, please stay home. We have it all set up so you can watch online, obviously. Please keep your kids home from Kids Club. Please keep your kids home from youth. Uh, that's just the best possible way we can keep each other safe. And it's not just about uh, COVID. It's not just about, you know, the virus itself. It's also just about the disruption. Um, as, as this has spread through some people in our church, it shuts down ministry, and people can't go to work, and people can't go to school. So one of the ways we love one another in this season is just staying home. Even if we're 98% sure it's just the sniffles, please 
stay home. And that's just one of the best ways that we can avoid things like this and help keep everybody safe. And so um, as we continue, we will keep you in the loop of what's going on. Uh, I imagine we'll have some more information for you this week. We're not worried about it. This is not a fearful thing. Uh, we believe this is wisdom. It's just good stewardship in terms of uh, our, our, just our organization and keeping the church family as safe as we can, as well as keeping the broader community safe, as well as, you know, no church wants to be a church with their names in the newspaper as a place where there's been an outbreak. Uh, and I know a bunch of churches that have had to go through that. And so we've wanted to avoid that as well for the sake of our witness and just to be able to, um, to be able to be a part of that. Sometimes people see those churches in the newspaper and they assume, well, that's a church that's defying everything. You know, that's a church that's not taking this seriously. And that has certainly not been Meadowbrook. And so as we continue to navigate this together, please be praying. If you know somebody who's sick, your obligation as a follower of Jesus is to care for them as you can. And so if people need groceries or if people need stuff picked up for them, we can be doing that. So please reach out if you know somebody who's sick and you can help to take care of them in that way. Of course, be praying for those uh, who are not well right now. We can be praying that COVID leaves our church family and stops spreading. Uh, pray for us as leadership as well as we continue to prayerfully make these decisions. And it's just the balance of what we got to figure out in this season. Uh, you've heard me say this a number of times. On one extreme, there is fear and we don't ever want to be walking in fear. On the other extreme is foolishness. We don't ever want to be walking in foolishness. Somewhere in the middle lies wisdom, and somewhere in the middle lies faith. And so we're trying to thread that needle. We're stumbling our way through it. Uh, we are all continuing to do that. And, and I don't want anybody annoyed uh, with your brothers and sisters in Christ who, who maybe got sick and maybe spread it. I think that can happen to any of us. I think uh, this is just a tricky virus. And so we're extending grace, and we are praying for everybody. And yeah, I, I think we will be short-lived in this and we will let you know as we go. All right, enough of that. I don't like having to talk about COVID at length. So let's get to uh, better news, which is the Word of God. We're in Revelation chapter 20 today. We are continuing on in our series, Apocalypse Now. We are almost done. This is our second last chapter, third last chapter. Uh, so we will wrap this up in the next couple of weeks. Revelation chapter 20, we are um, coming to the end of the end of the end. Not just the end of the book, it's the end of the Bible. Not just the end of the Bible, it's the end of time that we are getting into as we go through this together. And so if you have missed any messages, they are all online. You can catch up there on our YouTube channel. And Revelation, as we have said over and over and over again, is one of the strangest, most fascinating, beautiful, challenging, etc., 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 books of the Bible. It's just, uh, I hope, like me, you have just enjoyed the richness of it as we've gone through it this year. I hope you've been challenged by it. I hope you've been encouraged by it. There are passages that are very, very heavy and very dark. There are passages that are very, very hopeful and powerful and uplifting. All of it is interesting, we could say, for sure. <laughs> At the very least, Revelation, it's an interesting read. And I began my interest in Revelation back in Bible college, which it's really weird to say was like 20 years ago now. And that, I don't like saying that. That feels strange to me. But 20 years ago now, I began Bible college. One of my courses was called eschatology, which is the study of the end things. That's what the word means. Uh, it's the study of the end times, the return of Christ and all of that. And sitting in a classroom with a professor in Bible college, and we were talking about Revelation, he had a very, very literal view of the book. I 
I don't know if you've noticed by listening to me all this time, uh, but I tend to approach Revelation with a bit more of a symbolic viewpoint. And so I was thinking about it this week, and I, I have shared this story before, but we were talking specifically about today's chapter, chapter 20, Revelation 20, which talks about Christ reigning for a thousand years. And so the professor said, so we believe Christ will come, and he will literally reign for a literal thousand years. And even then, I was wrestling through all this stuff, and so I had stuck up my hand, and I said, but why a literal thousand years? Uh, you know, I don't know that we have to take numbers in Revelation literally, because there's 144,000 here, and there's seven over there, and, and those, I mean, those seem like they could be symbolic numbers, and I'm not opposed to a literal thousand years, but I don't think we have to take it that way. And he gently and kindly uh, just intellectually dressed me down in front of the entire class. Well, here's why, and here's this scholar and that scholar, and I was 20 and just couldn't keep up. I was just, I was outmatched entirely, outdebated, um, and now 20 years later, I am still right and he was still wrong. And I, I don't actually think it in those terms, of course, but uh, I still just feel, and I loved him, he was a brilliant teacher, and, and I learned so much from him. We will lovingly agree to disagree on this particular point. But this was the chapter that, that we were debating, and you will see why uh, this chapter can provoke debate as we go through it. And just a reminder as we get ready to jump into the text, if you have questions about anything, we do have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca, and we'd be happy to keep the conversation going if you have any questions at all. All right, let's get to our text. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not writ found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. 
So there's lots in there uh, that's, that's disputable, debatable, lots in there that provokes discussion, certainly. Uh, other than maybe Revelation 13, which is the beasts, the Antichrist passage, uh, this might be the passage that provokes the most debate and discussion, because there's just a lot in there that doesn't get explained super clearly and doesn't have a connection necessarily to other parts of Scripture, so it's harder to kind of flesh it all out. But there's a thousand years in there, and there's an abyss, and then there's a, a release of Satan, and then there's Gog and Magog, which means something, and then there's, they talk about a first resurrection and a second resurrection, a second death is in there, and so there are, there's a lot going on in this passage, and I'll be the first to say as we go through it, uh, when it comes to what this chapter means, I don't know, really. I don't really know. Uh, there are some things that seem very, very clear. There are some other things that are more mysterious. We are okay embracing the mystery, and, and our prayer needs to be always, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to us today? What are you speaking to us through your word? Now, we've talked throughout the series about how in Revelation, um, some people viewed the book as primarily happening in the past, the preterist view, that this book was primarily about things that were happening under Rome in the first century. Some believe it's primarily about the end times, future things to come. Some people feel like we've been in Revelation this whole time and events have been unfolding. Some people feel like Revelation is ultimately just a metaphor and it's there just to teach the church no matter what age it is in. What seems clear in today's passage is that this really does seem to be about end times stuff. Uh, however, if you feel like other stuff has been more about, you know, what happened under the Roman Empire, that is certainly fair. This particular passage, just like the return of Christ that we talked about last week, this seems to be end time stuff, obviously, because we're coming to Satan's final doom. We're talking, we're talking about the final judgment. Uh, so Revelation is a tricky book in that it doesn't read like a, a straightforward narrative with a beginning, middle, and end. It seems that at times it might be kind of jumping around past and present and future, and so that's okay. We're just going to, again, embrace that mystery. But there's a lot of good stuff and fascinating stuff and interesting stuff going on here. So starting the first couple of verses, starting in verse 1, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss. We talked about the abyss already in previous passages. I won't get into that again, but uh, holding in his hand a great chain, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So we have seen uh, Satan already in Revelation get defeated by an angel, right? Remember the archangel Michael fought against him and drove him out of heaven, and so Satan has already been defeated by an angel. What I love about about this uh, verse again is that it just reminds us, just a, a cool little reminder, that even an angel is still stronger than Satan. Like even one of God's subordinates, just one of the servants that God has created, is still more powerful than the most evil being who has ever existed. God doesn't even need to bind up Satan by himself, right? Jesus doesn't do anything in this passage. He sends an angel to do it. And I just love the power dynamic <laughs> that that demonstrates, that Jesus doesn't even need to get up. Jesus doesn't even need to say anything. Jesus just sends an angel, and the angel is more powerful than Satan. Uh, and so the ones who are on our side are better. We knew that already. 
30. Not only are they more numerous, Scripture says, but they are much more powerful. And so this dragon that we have seen throughout Revelation, that ancient serpent who is called the devil or Satan, again, we have made the point over and over in Revelation that when God really wants us to know what a symbol is, he just tells us. We don't have to worry about the mystery of it. And so there's no confusion that the dragon is the devil, that ancient serpent who has been deceiving since the beginning. From the very beginning, oh, when humanity first arrives on the scene, Satan is there and he is deceiving. And, and he is locked up in this passage so that he can't deceive anymore. And I, it's interesting, we'll come back to this in a couple minutes, but the fact that it says at the end of those couple of verses that Satan is going to be sealed, he's going to be captured, chained up, sealed up so that he can't deceive the nations anymore. But then it says, then he must be released again for a short time. And we'll talk about the why of that in a couple of minutes. But it's just a reminder, too, Satan must be released for a short time. And one thing Revelation makes very, very clear is that God is in control of everything, and he is orchestrating everything. And so I don't know if we'll ever for sure know why Satan has to be let loose again, but God has just determined this must happen. And God, who is controlling everything, will let it happen, and will uh, will unpack that for us. So Satan's going to be locked up for a thousand years. Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years. Uh, because my professor's not here right now, and because I'm the one with the microphone, I'm going to say we don't need to take that thousand years literally, necessarily. And if you do, that is fine. But I don't think there's any reason we have to assume it's a literal thousand years. I think that can be certainly a symbolic word, just meaning a long time. Uh, other, num other numbers that we see in Revelation, I would personally interpret as symbolically. If you don't agree with me on that, that is perfectly fine. So Satan is dealt with, moving on to verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. So that's interesting, right? Because we know that Jesus is the judge, ultimately. We know that God will be the one who brings the judgment, and yet there are apparently others as well who are going to be there and who are going to be helping with the judgment. And there is some speculation there. Are these angels? Are they archangels? Are they, um, are they uh, created beings who are created just for this purpose to help judge? And, and there's pros and cons to all of that. Um, I think the most likely argument is that uh, those thrones are, are full of, of us, of people. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Scripture does say that we will be participating in judgment. This comes to us in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Jesus would talk about this as well, that at the final judgment, the Queen of Sheba will stand up and be a part of that. The, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah will stand up and be a part of that. And so while God is the ultimate judge, apparently people, God's people, will have a role in it. And whether that is you know, more we are witnesses giving testimony or, or whether we are, I, I don't know. I can't really comprehend it uh, other than when I put these verses together, it would make sense to me that the ones who have the authority to judge are probably saints. They are Christians who have gone to be with the Lord who will participate in this in some way. Moving on to verse 5 through 7. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death, first resurrection, second death, has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And so this is typically called theologically the millennial reign of Christ. And if you want to Google it and read some more about it, that would be the term to look up, the millennial reign of Christ. And so we don't really see this idea in any other part of Scripture that talks about uh, two resurrections. There is lots of talk in the New Testament about resurrection. Primarily, of course, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but it's not just that. Scripture says he's the first fruits of that, but that we will be resurrected as well. And it's important for us to know this because we often, I think, have this view of, you know, we, you've maybe heard it said before, we are, we are souls, but we just are in the shell of a body. And one day the shell will die, but our souls will be with the Lord. And, and I think there is some truth to that. But it's important to know the big plan, the whole end of this whole thing, was never that we would be souls separate from the body. We are, we are bodies. We are embodied people. We are body, soul, and spirit. The plan has always been that we would be resurrected. And there is a transformation, Paul says. There's a new body somehow that will come about. Um, you know, some bodies have been mangled and some bodies have been decaying, but there will be a new resurrection body. But the plan is, is that there is a physical side of us that doesn't go away for all eternity. That, that we will be embodied, even when we see him face to face, even when we are with him for all eternity, it will be in a, a physical body of some kind, a, a powerful body, a, a transformed body, uh, but there is a resurrection coming for us. And so here it talks about a first resurrection, which apparently uh, isn't for everybody, it's specifically for the martyrs, for those who have suffered through, who have lost their lives, who have shed their blood for the name of Jesus, uh, they get to, to rise first and be part of this millennial. Reign. There is a, another resurrection coming before the end of the passage, and that is everybody else. And so uh, there are apparently kind of two phases to it as this gets unpacked. When it comes to this thousand-year reign, this is one of those things in Scripture uh, where I think there's really not a ton of clarity at all as to what it is talking about. Uh, we don't see it uh, clearly in other passages of Scripture, but there are three theories about this thousand-year reign. Uh, there's pros and cons to all of them. I, I don't think any of them are kind of a slam dunk, like it's clearly this one over the other ones, but there are three views of this thousand-year reign of Jesus, and they are premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And so premillennialism takes this fairly literally. They say Jesus will come back and he will set up a thousand year kingdom on earth that Satan is bound up for so it'll be a time of thriving it'll be a time where there isn't sin it'll be a time when we're face to face with the Lord here on the earth and there will be a thousand year reign that looks just like that post-millennialism views it a bit more symbolically and sees it as uh, Jesus will come back for good at the end of the thousand year reign the thousand year reign references kind of a golden age of the church that before Jesus returns the church will enjoy this time. There will be a great harvest. There will be a, a, just a, a transformed planet as the church continues on his mission. At the end of that, Jesus will return. And then amillennialism doesn't believe it has anything to do with the return of Christ specifically. Amillennialism believes that the thousand-year reign of Jesus is a symbolic thing that's talking about the age we live in right now. 
that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, began to reign. And we, the saints, began to reign in a way with him, not the fullness yet. But Ephesians talks about we are seated with him already in heavenly places. Spiritually, we are already there. And so amillennialism believes that this is the age we're living in now. The reign of Christ has already started. It has not seen its fullness yet until uh, evil and death are completely overthrown. But it believes that we are living in that right now. So I don't feel, honestly, just... Yeah, to be honest, super strongly about any of the three of these. They all have some merit. Uh, they all have some problems. Um, when it comes to which one you land on, I don't really care. And I don't say that in the sense of it's not important. I just say that in the sense of it's just I don't think any of them have a real slam dunk on how to look at it. Um, again, whenever it comes to anything in Revelation as well, it also just has to become, well, how literally are we taking a book that is obviously full of a lot of fanciful imagery along the way? So up to you. If you want to look into it some more, millennial reign of Christ would be the term to look up. Moving on, verse 7 and 8. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. So Satan gets let loose again, and it's kind of like... You know, sometimes like in a scary movie, the bad guy dies, but he's not really dead. And he like comes back for one final, you know, final scene. The death wasn't a real death. There's a little bit of that going on here. And, uh, and again, however we interpret that thousand years or whatever, the text is saying that Satan will be allowed to be released once more. And the big question really is, is just why, right? Why? In the Revelation story, and again, we don't know for sure, the timelines of things, but in the Revelation story, Jesus has come back already in Revelation 19. Jesus has already defeated the armies of the world and the kings of the world. He's overthrown Babylon and, and set up this kingdom, this thousand-year reign, whatever that looks like. Uh, Satan has already been defeated, right? He's been defeated. It began at the cross, and, and in this passage, he's been stripped and bound up, and he's in the abyss, and he's there. Like, well, why let him out, <laughs> right? Why, why do we have to go through this all again? Why doesn't the Lord just keep him there? If we know the end of the story is Satan's ending up in the lake of fire, why, why are we delaying this? Why is this all being allowed to happen again? And, and again, lots of debate as to the why. Um, the answer I like the best, and it's, it's just an opinion, so, so take this as it is. Um, but I, I've come across a few different scholars who talk about it and say, uh, it might just prove that Satan is irredeemable. That Satan will never change. Uh, if God is fully just and, and compassionate and gracious, sometimes people have asked, you know, well, could Satan ever be forgiven? Could Satan ever experience the grace of God? And I think perhaps this passage is there just to demonstrate, no, because Satan will never change. He will never stop. Even after he's been stripped at the cross, even after he's just seen Jesus come back and destroy all the kings of the world, even after he's been chained up by an angel and locked away for a thousand, like he's not calming down at all. He's not, you know, having moments of reflection in his thousands of years in the dark, you know, chamber. He's not repenting. He's not coming around. And so uh, one scholar just said, if God is fully just, then uh, part of that justice means people need a chance to, to redeem themselves. Not that they redeem themselves, but to turn, to repent, to turn to the Lord. Um, and so this little interlude in here might be there just to demonstrate that. 
just that Satan will never change. He will never stop doing what he is doing. Even locked away for a thousand years, he is not repenting. He is not changing his ways. He's not acknowledging God. He will never turn around. And so no one can say that God is unjust in the way that God is dealing with Satan. And so I think that's a reasonable explanation. I I think that fits. Um, Again, there are other ways you can look at it. But as Satan goes out, uh, again, he deceives the whole world. And this was an old picture I found that I just thought was kind of fun, to be honest. Uh, So there is an artistic rendition of Satan just dominating the world, enslaving everybody, uh, God watching from heaven and getting ready to act. And, And that same question exists for humanity of just, well, why... Uh, why does this happen again? Because we just saw Jesus come and defeat the evil of the world. And we saw Jesus come and set up this thousand-year kingdom, and we saw Jesus come and bind up the devil and, and lock him away. Um, Satan goes out and deceives the whole world again. And why is that allowed to happen? And again, I think the reason could be exactly the same, that just as this little interlude shows us that Satan doesn't change, I think perhaps this also shows us that fallen man doesn't change. That even with no Satan on the earth, apparently, or or no one influencing the earth for a thousand years, even with that happening, uh, as soon as Satan gets loose again, everyone just falls into his trap again, just like we've been doing since Eden, just like every single one of us has done uh, in choosing sin and turning away from the Lord. And so I think that might just be in there as well for the same reason, is it just, it demonstrates that, man, on our own, we just fall into Satan's traps, that we, we just... We were deceived in Eden, and and we have all been deceived in one way or another until Jesus sets us free. And even with a thousand-year break from Satan's influence, as soon as Satan comes out, we are deceived yet again. And so Satan will not ever change. Fallen humanity will not ever change. Uh, Jesus has given everybody the chance to repent and turn around. And, you know, we are told in the book of James, this is me paraphrasing it dramatically, uh, we're not allowed to say the devil made me do it. That's not an option given to us. Scripture says that we fall into sin uh, when we give into the thing that we actually we want, right? Whatever is in us that is there. So Satan can tempt, he can entice, but it's when our desires give way to it. That, that's all Satan can do is exploit that thing that's in us. And so he can tempt, but he can't make us do it. We do it because we want to do it. And he might be guilty of tempting us, but we are responsible for our own actions in that same way. And so Satan Satan goes out, deceives the whole world. The name Gog and Magog, or Gog and Magog, show up in this. And Gog and Magog, I remember so specifically sitting in a church service as a teenager, and I wasn't a Christian yet. But it was a Sunday night service. Remember Sunday night services? We used to spend like all day Sunday at churches. Uh, so you do your morning service or two morning services. You'd have a nap in the afternoon. You come back at 6 o'clock and you do your evening service. This was an evening service. And there was a guest speaker in and he was a, an expert on Revelation. He was talking about Gog and Magog. And he had all these arguments to put into place. And he said, we can say with authority that we know who Gog and Magog are. With authority, we can say that they represent China and they represent Russia. And those type of arguments happen all the time. And it's kind of like, as we've talked about with the Antichrist-like figure, as we've talked about with with Rome and different symbolisms of of Revelation, um, it's really, really easy just to make the enemies of the book the people we don't like. 
right? And so uh, in the early church, it, it emphasized Rome, obviously, and in the Middle Ages, it tended to reference Islam, Islamic nations. Um, throughout the Cold War, it was obviously the communists, and, and in our time, it's often the Chinese or the Russians, but uh, Gog and Magog just kind of become the, the boogeyman. No one's ever saying, well, what if Gog and Magog represented Canada and the United States? Um, yeah, we don't like that as much because we're the good guys, obviously, and it's bad guys who are going to do this. Uh, part of the point of Revelation is that the world is fallen. And so Gog and Magog is a term we see in Ezekiel. We see this story, a similar type story. And Gog is actually the name of the prince, uh, the, the leader, and Magog is the name of the land. So it's Gog of Magog in Ezekiel. Gog is the leader, Magog is his country. And so it kind of gets amalgamated together here as Gog and Magog. And so here's a picture on the screen, obviously. That's some of the kind of classic approach to Revelation. Magog represents Russia and, and whatever else. Um, none of that is in the text. There's no indication of it anywhere in the text. There's no indication anywhere uh, in the Old Testament of exactly who and where uh, these countries are. So if anyone ever tells you, I know what Gog and Magog are, you look them in the eye and say, liar! To say you're going beyond what the Bible text says. You can have a theory, but you don't know. And so especially in the context of the passage, which seems to say very clearly, Satan goes out to the four corners of the earth. He goes everywhere. And that everywhere is called Gog and Magog. It's probably meant just to be a symbolic term that means everybody. It's probably not meant to be just one country or just one people group. It's probably meant to be everybody. And so in Ezekiel in 38, Gog and Magog were the enemies of God's people. And they, they were as a real person and a real country at that time. They were the enemies of Israel. And so again, anyone reading it in the first century would probably go, bing, I know these names already. Uh, they they are here to represent the enemies of God's people. I think that's probably the safest bet for sure. Verse 9 and 10, they marched across the breadth of the earth. Again, this is the four corners of the earth. They've deceived everybody. Uh, the, the world is coming. They marched against the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, almost certainly meaning Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And again, parts of this story sound an awful lot like Ezekiel 38, where we see Gog and Magog the first time. In Ezekiel 38, verses 22 and 23, God says, I will execute judgment on Gog. So this is back in the Old Testament, in the times of Israel. I will execute judgment on Gog with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur. There's a phrase we just read in Revelation. Burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And I love any time in scripture it says, then they will know that I am the Lord. God is revealing himself even in judgment. And so Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 meet their end by judgment, including fire. You know, burning sulfur comes raining down on them. And so that imagery is being drawn into this passage. Gog and Magog, I think, metaphorically uh, representing the rest of the world. But to look back at Ezekiel 38, as we've often said in this series, when we see a reference in the Revelation story, we want to see what's the Old Testament connection. Because if we understand the Old Testament connection, that'll help 
help us understand what John is saying to us. And so in Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog opposed the people of God, and the Lord delivered them. The Lord came to the rescue. And as Revelation unfolds, whatever Gog and Magog represents, as they come against God's people again, God will deliver. There is no battle in this scene. There is no warfare in this scene. Uh, Again, Jesus isn't coming in on a horse this time. We have seen that already. None of that is happening. Uh, As Gog and Magog come against the city that God loves in Revelation 20, fire just comes and, and deals with them. So the Lord will deliver. The Lord will save. Moving on, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. So now we are moving into judgment day. Uh, and judgment day, I mean, it's, that's a phrase that becomes like, you know, Super Bowl 27, judgment day. Like there's a phrase to it that just has kind of become a part of the culture. Terminator 2, judgment day. Um, it's just something that isn't really about what it's about. And, and in our reverence for it, uh, you know, I don't care that Terminator used that term, but we, we need to revere this phrase, this idea, because this is a big deal for us. Even those of us who know the Lord, this is a big deal. And so there was a great white throne. Uh, it says the earth and the heavens flee from his presence. Again, just it, there's just fanciful language all throughout Revelation. Um, we know in a minute we're going to see a new earth and a new heavens and everything. And so um, it's just a way of, of just declaring the majesty, the glory of God. That God is so big and so majestic that even the, the elements were like, ah, and just running out of his presence because that's how big and that's how glorious he is. And so Jesus is on the throne. The final judgment is coming. So moving on to verse 12 and 13. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were open. So this is everybody else. The martyrs, apparently, part of the first resurrection. This is the second resurrection. This is everybody else. I saw the dead, great and small. So this is believer, unbeliever, everybody. Standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Now, we know as followers of Jesus that we are, are set when it comes to Judgment Day. We know what the verdict is going to be. We are guiltless, not because we're literally guiltless, but because Jesus has declared us that, that, that our sin is not counted against us, that we are set free. But Scripture also makes clear that we will also still be judged Uh, And it's not going to be the balance of heaven and hell for us as as much as uh, the judgment of our life and what we did with our life. And so the second resurrection comes, and we see the phrase in here a couple of times that this judgment is according to what they had done. That, that we will stand before God and we will give an account of everything that we have done. And that is, should both be a sobering and perhaps a, a good kind of fear, a fear of the Lord, a little bit of a scary thought. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so one day, every single one of us will stand before the judgment throne of God, and we will give an account. We will say, with what you gave me, this is what I did with it. With the life that you gave me, this is how I used it. This is what I I did with my time. This is what I did with my money. This is what I did with my words. This is what I did with everything. I will give an account to God. We owe him an account. He gave us the life. 
and it is our job to give an account to him for it. Is that, uh, whoo, is that a, is the fear of the Lord settling in? That's not a bad thing. And scripture talks about, you know, the types of things we will be judged for. And, you know, Jesus just kind of throws out there in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, yeah, you'll be judged for every careless word. Hmm. Every word. Every tweet, certainly, every post, every word will be judged. We'll be judged for how we treated the least of these, how we welcomed the stranger, how we took care of the sick, how we loved one another, how we sacrificed for one another, how we put others before ourselves. We'll be judged for our actions. We'll be judged, of course, for our words. We'll be judged for how we have stewarded our money. Uh, We will be judged, Scripture says, even for our motivations. Our motivations will be laid bare. So when it talks about we're going to give an account, like it's not a shallow skim of our lives. Like we will give an account for everything. And again, there is a fear of the Lord that is good and healthy. And it's not healthy if I'm walking around terrified and worried about getting hit with lightning bolts. It's not healthy if I avoid him because I'm afraid of him. That's not healthy. But there is a healthy fear of the Lord that understands that, you know, just like with our parents, one of the things that kept us in line when we were kids was knowing that there could be punishment if we didn't do the right thing. And that was a healthy fear of our parents. Hopefully we didn't walk around terrified of our parents, but there was a fear of the consequences of our actions. And so part of the healthy fear of the Lord is understanding that we will give an account, that we will stand before him, and everything will be laid bare, and he who gave us life will demand an accounting. Now the benefit for us who know him already, who have his word already, is we actually can start to deal with stuff now. We can recognize our sin now. We can hold each other accountable now. We can start to to be formed and transformed. We can start to work on our self-discipline and shift directions. We can repent and we can seek the Holy Spirit's help so that when we stand before him, we are more pure and we have left sin behind. And we're not looking the same as we were five years ago. So that's the gift of grace that we are given as we stand before him is that we need to take that seriously then. We need to take our sin seriously. We need to take each other's sin seriously. We need to be able to lovingly hold one another to account. Part of the reason we lovingly hold one another to account is so I can say, well, Mike, I want you to have a better judgment day. And I want a better one too. And so let's hold each other to account. And let's help each other along. And let us, let us lovingly restore one another. And even as we stumble and sin, we pick each other up and we keep moving forward. Uh, we get that advantage now. We know this day is coming. We know what the Lord requires of us. And so we can start living into that now. There are books, plural, that are open. One of them is called the Book of Life. We've seen that phrase a number of times in Revelation, sometimes called the Lamb's Book of Life, Jesus' Book of Life. And we know at the end of the passage that uh, whatever a person has done in their life, ultimately the most important thing is, is your name written in this book? Because if not, then the lake of fire is where things end. And so that is the question. There used to be songs we sang about this. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? And the question, of course, that everyone wants to know is, well, how, how do I get in there? That's, if that's the important question, how do I get in there? And the simple answer is, well, do you belong to him? Are you in Christ? Is he Lord? Are you trusting him? Are you walking with him? Are you, the, the question, are you in Christ? Are you with him? Are you on his side? Are you living for him? Are you putting your faith in him? 
the classic Romans picture is if you declare with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's how you get your name in there. And we have dangerously made that that teaching about confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. We've dangerously made that about uh, pray a prayer and say the right words, right? As long as you say he's Lord, you're good. As long as you have a basic belief system that includes him, then you're good. And those words are so much more than that because it's not just say the words Jesus is Lord. It's is Jesus Lord of your life? Is he Lord? The demons will acknowledge he is Lord. The demons believe that there is one God, James says. They tremble. They're not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So it's not just about I I assent or agree to a, a belief system. It's that is he Lord? Is your knee bowed to him? Are you following him? And part of that, of course, is the trust. And yes, I believe and I affirm uh, the, the basic ideas of the faith. But is he Lord? It's the most important part of final judgment. Is your name written in that book? And if you're not in there, then that is the question, is that, well, Jesus has given that invitation that, that he says, come, follow me, turn from your sin and follow me. That is the invitation given. And as we do that, our name is written there. But that's not the only book. There's the Lamb's Book of Life. That's the most important book. And then apparently there are other books that have recorded all the other stuff that we've done. And so even we who are Christ followers will stand before that judgment. So even if we stand there and we say, okay, uh, Susan, your name is in there. You're in the Lamb's Book of Life. But we still will give an account. We will stand before God and we will give an account of everything. And so Grant Osborne puts it this way, talking about this passage. He says, we are saved by grace, but we are judged by works. We will still be judged by what we did, even if we are saved by grace. And so Paul would talk about this a little bit in 1 Corinthians as well, just talking to believers, saying, one day you will stand before God, and talking about that, that final day, uh, he uses this picture in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. If anyone builds their life on this foundation, Jesus, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, the day of the Lord, the judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. And so, The building it's talking about is just our lives, basically. What are we doing with our lives? What do our actions, our words, our motivations look like? As we live out our lives, we are building something, and on Judgment Day, fire will test that thing, and what is good and holy and godly will remain, right? The gold will remain, the stones will remain, but if we have been living shallowly, if we have been ignoring the teaching of Jesus, if we have not been doing the things that we should do, uh, and we all have that, I think, to a certain extent, that's the picture of the wood, the hay, or the straw, fire makes that disappear. And so our lives will be tested, The quality of our lives will be tested. Our works, our words will be tested. And if what we have built is good and survives, then there is reward in heaven. If if it doesn't survive, uh, you're still saved, right? If If you have put your trust in him, if you're following him, if he truly is Lord, if you're orienting your life towards him, you will still be saved. Uh, only as one escaping through the flames. Like you're, <laughs> you're barely getting in is the picture. 
Um, and so, you know, he will, he's not removing your salvation uh, in that case, but, but there isn't a reward. And Jesus would talk about this. Um, Paul would talk about crowns, and Jesus would talk about, you know, thrones. And there is a, a heavenly reward available. And the heavenly reward, apparently, is what depends on your actions. How you live your life here will determine your place and your position in eternity. And so we are told often, live towards heaven then. Live towards eternity. Be willing to sacrifice here knowing that eternity is way longer than here, right? Even if we live to 100 or 120 here, it's still a better investment to live towards eternity. Jesus says, don't store up treasures here on earth. That will always decay. Store up your treasures in heaven where it will never decay. Like be focused on eternity. Keep eternity in your mindset. It is the most important part where we will spend most of our existence. Everything here on earth is so, so, so temporary. Coming towards the end. Verse 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. The first death is our natural death here on earth. Our heart stops here. That's the first death. This is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so anyone who is not in Christ, uh, anyone who is not there. So death, the power of death itself, will ultimately be removed forever. Uh, Hades, the holding place for the death, there will be no need for that anymore because death is being destroyed in its fullness at this point, as well as anyone whose name is not found in the Lamb's book of life. When we're talking about hell, that's always difficult stuff. Um, so the classic view of hell uh, from Revelation is this lake of fire, the, the kind of the burning forever. And in different other parts of the New Testament, hell is talked about like a prison. Uh, some places it's talked about as the outer darkness, uh, thrown outside the city, thrown outside the gates. There are different pictures. Jesus would use uh, the term Gehenna, which is a Greek term, which referred to a valley outside of Jerusalem where the garbage dump was. And, and it was kind of, there was always a fire going to consume the garbage. And so the picture is of being, being cast out, out of the city. Uh, cast out there. And whenever we talk about hell, it's always tricky. It's always very difficult. It's one of the toughest parts of our theology. We need to remind ourselves over and over and over again that Jesus has done everything on his end to make sure no one ends up here. He has done everything that he can. He has come. He has died. He has risen. He has reached out. He has left the word. He has left the spirit. He has left the church. He is, you know, we are his message to the world, saying there is a way out of this. And, and you know, I don't know that that's the most important thing to share about the gospel, but it is an important thing for sure. Uh, the invitation is, hey, there is life in Jesus. That There is forgiveness of sins in Jesus. There is reunion with God in Jesus. There is eternity with him in Jesus. And so I'm not going to go too deep into hell this morning, um, but I'll draw your attention to this. A few years ago, you might remember, we did a little mini-series on hell that we called Exploring Hell. Uh, so that was in July 2018. We weren't doing videos back then, so these aren't on our YouTube channel. But if you want to go to our website, meadowbrook.ca, go under resources, you can go through. We did a four-week series over the month of July, looking at different views of hell. Because one of the things uh, that I have come to, to understand is that, you know, if you grew up in church at all, uh, you know, the, the view we were taught was hell is the place where the unsaved burn in, in torture for all eternity. And I'm not saying that that's not the case, but I also feel very strongly that that is not a biblically clear 
slam dunk argument. And so one of the things we walk through is just three different views of what hell is like. So the first one we called classic hell. That's the one I just described. Uh, Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. That's the theological term where sinners are punished for all eternity. So it lasts forever. They are awake and aware of it for the whole time. And there is a punishment. There is a torment to it. Uh, The second view, which I call destructive hell, the the classic term is annihilationism. It's hell is a place of temporary punishment where sinners are destroyed. And there are a few verses that point to that, that hell is not necessarily a place where they burn forever, but a place where they go, and just like you throw a piece of paper in the fire and then it is no more, that hell is a place where we are destroyed. And then redemptive hell, it's called universalism, is that hell is a place of temporary punishment where sinners are purified and redeemed. So hell is the place where God... Uh, rightly deals with sin and punishes people for their sin and their rebellion, and yet his ultimate goal is to save everybody. And that is the one that we all really hope is true, that we wish is true. Uh, Of the three of them, I think universalism, unfortunately, is the weakest argument. I don't think there's a ton of Bible that supports that. I think the, the top two, there's more scripture that supports that. So some have looked at even this passage of scripture that we've read today, Revelation 20, and it says, like, oh, well, it says the, you know, the evil beings that get thrown into hell uh, will be tormented day and night forever. But when it says the dead get thrown into hell, it doesn't say that they will be tormented forever and ever. So how much do we want to read into that? Um, The classic view of hell, part of the challenge of it, of course, is how do we balance the idea of eternal conscious torment with a God who also tells us over and over again that he is merciful and he is compassionate and he is loving and, you know, and, and, and even in his justice. Uh, is it justice if I am Hitler every day on earth for a hundred years is it justice then to be punished for all eternity Um, wouldn't justice be a hundred years maybe of of punishment or something like that so it all gets really really tricky and and it is a disputable matter Uh, again I universalism I I would love it to be true. Uh, John Stott was a theologian who passed away a few years ago. He was an advocate of annihilationism, and he said, uh, yeah, universalism, I so want it to be true, but I just can't get there biblically. Uh, that is how I feel about it. Um, so John Stott has some good stuff on annihilationism, if you want to look into that. John Piper has some good stuff on the classic view of hell, if you want to look into that. Um, it's, it's an interesting conversation for sure. Um, you know, one thing that is clear throughout all scripture uh, is that this is not a place that we want to go. It is not a place we want anyone to go. And that is part of our job then as the church is to say there is a way back to God. There is a way to be forgiven. There is a way to eternal life. There is a way to that. And so come on up, worship team, as we get ready to wrap up today. As we continue to talk about thriving in 2021, our year of thriving, How do we thrive? Like the Apostle Paul, sitting in chains, oppressed by his government, about to be executed by his government, and yet nonetheless able to say, I have learned the secret to being content no matter what the circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So how do we thrive in light of the, the challenges of this passage? So, first of all, Uh, We will thrive when we rightly remember Judgment Day and where that fits into our our story. That that is where we are going. 
and again, there is a good, healthy fear of the Lord that motivates us towards righteousness. There is a good, healthy fear of the Lord that pulls us away from sin and away from evil. And so we will thrive when we remember that. That's going to help motivate us to do the right thing. It's going to motivate us to live rightly, to live sacrificially, to live putting others first, to live boldly declaring the name of Jesus, that we will thrive when we remember we will give an account. And of course, we don't know when that day will come. Right? So Jesus talks to us constantly through parables and teaching about live your life in a state of readiness as if he might come back at any moment, as if your judgment day might be today. And if it were today, what would the fire reveal in your life? When we live with that readiness, that's, we'll thrive there because we will be living more towards who God has called us to be. We will thrive, and this is not a pleasant thought, but we will thrive when we rightly remember hell. And, and however we are interpreting that, but when we rightly remember that that is a real place, that that is the end for, for a lot of people, Scripture says, when we rightly remember that part of our job is to be praying, but not just praying, to be proclaiming that there is a way to avoid that, that there is a way to get your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We will thrive there. Uh, one of our, our weaknesses, I think, in our, our church culture in the West is that we are just so comfortable. Church is so comfortable. Uh, our faith is so comfortable. We often, often lean towards that. We lean on the blessings, and we talk about the blessings. That's all good stuff, but we, we have lost our urgency, for sure. We've lost the urgency that there is a message that people need to hear, and our job as the church is to share it. We will thrive as we do that. We will thrive as we are grateful. Last point. We will thrive as we are grateful that even as we are concerned for others and praying for others and reaching out for others, uh, we know we have been saved from this place. We are grateful in that. Uh, there's a great song by Maverick City called uh, I Thank God. And there's a line in the bridge. It says, hell lost another one. I am free. And I, I love it. I could sing that all day long. And so we are grateful in what he has done. We are grateful for his grace. We are grateful that he paid a great price to do this. We are grateful for what he has done and who he is. And we will thrive when we are grateful because we are called to be thankful in all circumstances. And so uh, as we always like to do at Meadowbrook, we want to end on that note. We want to end being grateful, being worshipful. And so we are going to spend a little bit more time in worship before we close. And so watching at home today, which is everybody, uh, crank up your volume, sing along with us. Give him the gratitude that he deserves for what he has done.